Hey guys, thanks for downloading and listening to Rolling for Change. This is ostensibly our fourth episode for Rolling for Change, if you don't count the episode zero that we did. But it was recorded very early on in the process of developing early Rolling for Change, and as a result, uh, we had not quite sussed out what to do with sound equipment and how to uh, manipulate files in a way that, that makes them very clear. And that's unfortunate because the interview that follows our discussion here is a fantastic interview with Glenn Given, who is the maker of the game Bad Habit. It is a game about non-suicidal self-injury, and it's important that we point out to you that some of the material in the podcast today may not be appropriate for sensitive listeners. We are going to be talking about non-suicidal self-injury, which is basically cutting in self-harm that it's rarely actually a suicidal wish or a suicide wish it is more often a means of coping with a really uh, challenging traumatic event in in your life however there are times at which non-suicidal self-injury becomes suicidal or very harmful to the person in question because they're they're doing it in such a way as to cause some real damage to themselves so it was i thought it was important to kind of issue this trigger warning about the content of the show. That said, what we have for you is a fantastic discussion between Josue, Brian, and myself, as well as an interview with Glenn Given. So thanks so much for listening, and without further ado, here is, this is the way it's going to go. We're going to start with a initial podcast with uh, Brian, Josue, and myself just talking about bad habit and and talking about uh the impact of the game and the impact of the interview the interview itself follows our conversation so this is a little bit longer episode than we have done in the past and fair warning the interview is a little more distorted than our actual discussion so just bear with us i think the interview is worth taking a listen to if you can make it through it if not i will uh think about sometime in the near future transcribing that interview into a written post so that you guys can read it um, if for whatever reason you're not able to make it through the the sound editing problems that that happen in the last part of the show anyway once again thanks so much for checking out rolling for change and without further ado here's the show Welcome to Rolling for Change. My name is Woody Harris. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brian Peace. Hello. And Mr. Josue Cardona. Hey, guys. Great to be back. Yes, finally, after what what the audience will not perceive as a hiatus whatsoever. They don't need to know how long it's been. It's no, it's okay. they, they don't. We can it's withhold fine. publishing the third episode. It's okay. There Just you hold go. it up for about a month or two. Yeah. So, you're listening to Rolling for Change, a podcast about the therapeutic and educational value of board gaming, and today we're going to talk about a new game by Playdate, and the game is called Bad Habit. The game was by a a man named Glenn Given, and at the end of the podcast here, 
we will talk to Glenn Given and talk to him about his creation of Bad Habit, the game. But first, we're going to talk to you a little bit about our gaming experiences recently. And uh, maybe, maybe Brian, you could talk, start us off. Okay, so I had a couple of um, really interesting moments in gaming this last, uh, these last few weeks. Um, I went over to a friend's house for his birthday party, and I played one game that I'd really been looking forward to that I really was 100% positive I was going to love and hated it. He introduced me to a game, this a dexterity game, which is not usually my forte, that I was pretty sure I was going to hate that I ended up loving. So don't judge a book by its cover or a board game by its box or whatever. So we we played Food Chain Magnate first. Okay. This has sounded so much like my kind of game. There's a lot of crunchiness to it. There's a lot of you know different ways to, to win. What I also found was if you find a way to lose you're probably never coming back from that hole you've dug for yourself. And that's not my favorite kind of game. I don't like games that are not forgiving at all. So, so you're saying that just one move will change the course of the game. Like you can make one mistake and then never recover. Right. I was doing re I was doing fairly well. I was competitive in the game. One person built a restaurant next to me that I, I couldn't stop him from doing it. He built a restaurant next to me. I was able to sell exactly nothing and I had to lay off my entire workforce. I was back down to almost having what I started at the beginning of the game. Meanwhile, he collected all the money and he was a runaway winner. No one else could catch him after he did that. And it was all because of that one move, that one round, he took off and left everyone else behind. And we did some calculations. And in the number of rounds left, no one could have possibly caught up to him. Um, so I, everyone said, so how did, how did you like that? And I said, well, I'm glad I played it once. <laughs> once i never have to play it again now good hamster roll was the other one if you've never played that one there's a hamster wheel kind of thing with um sets of wood around it and you have a variety of of different shape size and weighted wooden pieces and on your turn you have to put one in somewhere in front of where the last piece went and at some point it's going to cause enough counterweight that the, the wheel is going to roll forward. Any pieces that fall out become your pieces. The first person to round up pieces wins. And I actually ended up winning that one because I put someone in a really, really bad situation and they got a whole mess of pieces. And then I was able to put two more pieces on and beat the crap out of them. It was great. It, it could have something to do with losing one and winning the other one. I'm not going to say it doesn't. <laughs> but it's a possibility. Um, let's see. I had two other um, important games that I've played recently. One of them I finally managed to get one of my Grail games, 1960, The Making of the President. Um, I was at a game convention and someone was selling it to, because they were having a baby and they needed to clear out and apparently probably didn't know what they had on their hands, which is an out-of-print game that in a lot of markets is going for about $90 to $100, and I got it for 25 because awesome sauce um <laughs> and i was finally able to play that one again and it was exactly as good as i remembered it to be and uh last night got to play a game that i'm sure woody's probably going to talk about uh, so i'll let him talk about that one um and i i, I really liked it even though um <clears throat> the wind was skunked from me i gotta say i'm a little bitter about it but it wasn't skunked by woody so i'll let him talk yeah uh you're kind of putting me into a place where i have to talk about it Wow. Um, that, that, that's fine. Uh, 
before we it's get to game. that, what, what about uh, what about Hostway? What what gaming experiences have you had recently? Um, so uh, I recently went to PAX East, and uh, that's you know like the I believe now it's the biggest um, overall gaming convention. You know, it's focused mostly on video games, but it's it's right. bigger than the different packs, um, packs and uh, I had a lot of fun there. So you know, I usually play mostly video games. I did a lot of virtual reality, um, but I did I did pick up a game called Japanese the Game, and it's a card battle game where you have to do all these combos to attack the other player, but the combos are actually um, correct. Uh, syntax in Japanese. So even though you don't have to pay attention to the actual um, kanji, uh, you can um, you can just do it by color coding and, and learning the, the different combinations of colors. But um, if you pay attention, you're actually forming sentences in Japanese. And they have an, um, they had a few expansion packs. I only picked up the core deck, but there was a, a I think there was an anime um, one. There was a kaiju one, which is monsters in, in Japanese. Uh, that was, um, so I'm there's someone uh, that I know that is going to Japan soon, so I can't wait to play it with them so they can kind of practice. And the other board game I played, uh, I mentioned this to you guys kind of off off air, right? It was uh, my, my girlfriend made a a board game. It's kind of a roll and move game, but it has a, like therapeutic uh, value. And uh, I played that a couple times. I played it with my niece, which is who's five years old, and that's kind of the target audience. Okay. And that was pretty cool. Um, but I haven't played any other any other board games um, that I can remember recently. But that, but uh, Brian, that experience of like just knowing that there's no way you can win, like, oh, that's the worst. Man. <laughs> yeah, there, we had about an hour and a half left of the game to play, and we all decided there's no way we can catch up. Let's just let's just go get something to eat. Ugh, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing about that is, how do you how do you extricate yourself? Because you know, at this point, I have already lost this game. My experience of this game is either going to be I'm just sacrificing myself so that you guys continue to enjoy yourself, or I'm going to work towards really messing you up since I can't possibly win. You know, in the Glenn Given interview, he mentions um, you know that last hour and a half in Monopoly where you know someone's just cleaning house and 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 wrapping things up and nobody else can can win or really do anything, and it's kind of yeah, those games like that, like ugh. and some games are kind of designed to end that way, and and I really don't like that. In other games, it just happens that way either way it's it's not not very fun i think it's really demoralizing for the players because you're you're you're, you've brought yourself to this space to have a good time hopefully have some social interaction and now it's just painful and there's a lesson there i mean maybe the lesson is just don't play with these people anymore or play this game anymore but at the same time i don't know if that kind of self-sacrifice is good for us or not so I, I'm still fascinated by hearing more about your girlfriend's game, and I hope you'll bring that back to us sometime. Maybe we'll even get her on the show to talk about the game. But can you just oh, give yeah, us yeah. a general idea of what the game is about, what you do in the game? Oh, sure. So so as of right now, the game is called um, Reach the Beach. And the story, the, the narrative of the game is that you are a family, um, two adults, two children, and they have to... Um, collect different items to then reach the beach. Um, and the the game was designed to help educate and bring awareness to 
physical and sexual abuse for children. So kind of how do you bring up those conversations and how does those things happen? And so on your way there, there's all these different situations. So depending on uh, if you fall on certain um, areas, there are situation cards. And these situation cards come up and they present these scenarios. And uh, for example, when I played with my niece, you know, she would she would give her opinion on how – on what she would do if that in that scenario, if she was, uh, you know, any of the people involved, and it's an opportunity for you know a child to present their opinion on on a situation, but also for the parents to kind of provide guidance what what to do if something like that were were to happen. And uh, it was really funny. My niece seemed to enjoy it, and she she said. Um, that her favorite part was when she won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're playtesting it now. And um, since the last time I played it with my niece, and I recorded the whole thing, I actually have some cool audio, um, which we could use in the future maybe. But yeah. uh, my, my girlfriend and her and the team that, that made it, they went to a gaming night here um, close to where we live. And they got a lot of good feedback from, from people. So they're, they'll be tweaking the game and it's, it's kind of fascinating to see that process because it, they did it as part of a class called Games for Change and um, as part of her master's program. And the person teaching the course is one of the original people who set up the Games for Change um, festival here in New York City. Oh, wow. So. I had no idea such a festival existed. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's very interesting. I went last year. I could, I could talk all about it, yeah. Okay, we'll have to we'll have to have a podcast about games for change at some point, I think. But so I'm fascinated with this uh, this game, and I'm looking forward to checking it out whenever it comes available to the public, kind of thing. Oh, and there are a whole bunch of designers, right? Uh, different kinds of designers. So the game looks great. You know, it may it's it still needs some tweaking, and and um, you know, I'm sure it could it'll be different. You know, when, when they're done with it, but it just looks amazing right now. It looks like something. I mean, they could sell that, I think. It's okay. Pretty, and it's going to be that normal kind of this is a therapy game. And you know how we talk about therapy games oh, not yeah, being yeah, yeah. very, I don't know, meaningful to people. Gamerly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Gamerly. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay. So. My experience with games, I'm going to talk about two games, and, and one of them I'll just go ahead and talk about last night's game. We played the Kickstarter edition of Mari Nostrum Empires. Now, this game is an area control game in which you are trying to expand your empire by building some kind of engine in order to generate revenue, which will help you further expand your empire. It's just kind of a building process. And you're tested on three levels, basically. One of those levels is uh, the merchandising level or the marketing level. So the, the person that's highest in the marketing determines who's going to do the market first. There's a military level, so the person highest in the military determines who's going to make their military moves first. And Brian, what was the third, uh, third level? There was um, trade. Right. Uh, culture. Where you have to have buildings and warfare. Okay, trade, culture, and, and the military side. Okay. So I can't really talk too much about how to play the game because this is only my first playthrough of the game. But I can tell you that my experience of the game was such that there were moments in the game that I felt like I figured it out. I know what I'm doing. I'm moving forward, and I'm going to make some successful moves here. 
And then there were moments in the game where my hopes were just dashed to pieces, and I sat there trying to reformulate my, my strategy, how I'm going to get to this point. And at some point, I just kind of lost the thread and started trying to develop military just so I could protect myself, because it was clear that everybody was coming for me. Meanwhile, everyone was not coming for Woody. Someone horned in on his territory. He attacked them, and it turned into a little griping like match between the two of them. Meanwhile, the rest of us were sitting back and building up forces, building up forces, and expanding our empires, and then attacking. So the two, we watched the two of them sit and bicker amongst each other, and we only started attacking Woody and uh, Woody and Ray whenever they started saying, well, I think we're going to expand this way. Oh, no, no. See, this is our place. <laughs> I will point out that the other player won the game. So yeah. even though I thought we were just getting into this pissing match here for this land, he still managed to beat me. Um, to beat all of us, basically. Yeah, because he was sneaky. Yes. He seemed to know what he was doing at, at some point in the game. Well, he decided that military was not the way to go, and he went up with... Uh, there are like four different ways you can you can win, and he went with the way that, that was the easiest one for him to accomplish. Um, I, I, I still claim that the dice just hated me last night. <laughs> Otherwise, you all would have been eating my, eating my civilized, civilized dust. <laughs> so, so that's Mario and Austin. This is by Academy Games. It's a fantastic little area control game, and uh, I, I think it's definitely worth going back to. We compared it to Twilight Imperium 3 um, only because of the expansion and uh, the, the style of taking over land. It's primarily, the it's primarily is not really there. Yeah, it's primarily a, um, an Empire expansion game. And it has war in it, but just like Twilight Imperium, if you go, if you try to start war immediately, right out the gate, you're going to be sorry for it. Yes, and and I was. <laughs> so the other one I want to mention that I'm really excited about, just having a really great time with, is um, Pandemic Legacy. This uh, this is a game that builds on itself. If, if you guys have seen Risk Legacy, Risk Legacy, everything changes each game so that the moves you make in game number one affect the possible moves you can make in game number two and so on and so forth. This thing is set up for a whole year of changes like that. And I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I, I want people to experience the game for themselves. But I can tell you that it's the most engrossing cooperative experience that I've ever been involved with as far as board game goes. So, so this is a pandemic, the virus um, game, right? That yeah. Pandemic? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is the Matt Peacock oh, awesome. game in which you're trying to contain the virus. But in this case, you've got some very definite storyline going through about how that virus, how those viruses expand throughout the world and what happens when they do. Huh. Okay. And to, uh, to give it a little more kudos... Neither one of our wives like cooperative games. They love this one. So, yes. Go Rob Davio and Matt Leacock. Well done. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Uh, so, Hostway, if you get a chance to play this thing, it, it's it's definitely a commitment that you're going to have to yeah. take to, to play through the series of stuff. But the, the process of watching the board change and watching these situations change is fascinating. It's just one big year-long drama. 
and oh. watching the characters change. That's yes. fascinating too. Yes. That sounds incredible. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. Yeah, I'm going to have to find a group to play with for for a year though. It's gonna See, this is what you get for living in New York. You should come and live down here. Okay. Just for pandemic legacy may be the thing that does it. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> we have found the proverbial straw that breaks Josue's camel's back. I mean, it's only a plane ride back. to Pax East. It should be okay. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> All right. So shifting gears, let, let's get to talking about uh, Bad Habit. The, the game is called Bad Habit. We've got an interview uh, with Glenn Gibbon, who is the creator of Bad Habit. Um, it's a game by Playdate, so you can check it out on gamesbyplaydate.com. And uh, it's a fantastic little cooperative card game that teaches people about non-suicidal self-injury. So this game is... I'm not quite sure how to explain it, because the goal of the game is to educate. The process of the game itself is a deduction game. So the game works like this. You are given three cards that, that are representative of the kinds of psychological conditions you experience, such as worthlessness, self-loathing. Um, distress. Distress. Loneliness. All these things are the cards that you have in front of you, and the other people are trying to help you get rid of these terrible conditions. In the meantime, you are turning over trigger cards, and the trigger cards are statements like, no one likes me, or... Um, so what, it's not a big deal, get over it? Yeah, those, those kind of statements. The, the kinds of statements, it's, the nice thing is that these are really nice, ambiguous triggers that we've all kind of experienced. And so as you turn those over, they have the letters below that show which condition they will trigger. So let's say it triggers worthlessness. When you get that trigger, you have to take a token out of the bag. And the bag has, I think, 22 tokens per person that are white tokens. And it has one red token in the bag. And the red token is meant to represent a terrible event. Since we're talking about non-suicidal self-injury, that terrible event can be defined by whoever's playing. But we're looking at, like, really bad injury or potential death or something along those lines. So after that happens, other people who are, are working to determine what your experience is, like, are you feeling worthless? Are you feeling... Um, distress or whatever it might be. And if they can figure it out and say, Woody, I think you're dealing with, with feeling distress, then I can get rid of two of my tokens. So, And the distress card. And the distress card, yeah. So I'm trying to get rid of all my cards, basically. And we're all doing that. So there's, there's a clear deduction game going on in the game. But then the other part of the game is this this process of learning about how different triggers impact one another. So yeah, and and I, th I thought it was really interesting how Glenn said that 
you know, he saw this as a challenge to make a game that was very emotional. And I don't know how, how you know, if we've done justice to the explanation, um, you know, to, to what the game is so far, but just just a lot of words that, that, I don't know, I think will provoke a lot of emotions in a lot of people just from hearing that explanation. And to actually go through that and having the opportunity to kind of, you know, the ideas that you're feeling those emotions and, and how do you react to someone else having those emotions? And, you know, kind of the, the learning part of it, you know, the, the responses that you're giving, they're, they're positive responses, right? There's no, the incentive isn't, there's no incentive to give negative responses or do, or, or do harm, right? The idea is that everybody's going to provide these positive responses so that we can get rid of these negative cards. And, and it's one of those things where like the process, just the process of playing it, because of the terms that we're using and because of the subject matter, I mean, they're, you're simulating this thing um, that, that happens to many, many people and you're learning through, through the doing. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's an experiential process because, okay, so Brian played this with me at, the, at a recent convention and I'll let him speak to it a little bit, but basically it's a really heavy idea to pull out in the midst of like your normal gaming time, you know, you're going to get some really deep conversations. Yeah. And the way we did this was in order to try to bring the therapeutic side of it much more to the present, whatever the trigger was that came out, you know, like, um, if it was something like they're all going to laugh at you or, uh, you're worthless. We tried to talk about experiences of having people say those things to us so that it made it a lot more personalized in the process of playing the game. And that made for a deeper conversation. So it can be done on kind of a surface level or you can take it to that second level depth. Yeah, we did a fair bit, fair amount of role play in it. And another thing that it helped out with with the role play was I was kind of tired at that point. And we said, hey, let's let's go ahead and break this game. We've been wanting to play it. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, let's do it. My brain was kind of foggy, fuzzy. Uh, we were at a convention, after all. Um, sleep was a secondary function. Um, and one of the one of the things I said in the midst of of the role play to try to address someone's someone's card that they had, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something that someone would generally say with perfectly good intentions. And the minute it came out of my mouth, my brain went, Oh no, no, you can't say that to someone like this. That that's a, that's a whole other trigger right there. And of course it was confirmed because everyone else at the table said, Whoa, Whoa, no, back that up a little. It was back. I know, I know, I know what I just said. And Holy crap, because I, myself, it, this game kind of hit home for me. Like, like I told the people at the table, um, because I was a non, um, suicidal. Well, I was non-suicidal is a very strong word for me whenever I was that age, but I was a self-harmer too. And reading through these things and seeing the, you know, I responded a lot of the time with what people would have said to me and then realized, wow, that was, yeah, that I didn't really like the way they responded to that the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't get to play it, but, uh, I can imagine that there's so many. I mean, this this game needs a huge trigger warning. Actually, this episode needs a big trigger warning, probably. Yeah, <laughs> right. Maybe it does. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and and so 
I mean, it'll be different for, for different people, but was it, I mean, was it uncomfortable for you, Brian? Was it like, was it hard? Did you like want to get up and go or was it? Well, a lot of, a lot of those issues for me kind of, they still come back every now and then. Um, the desire to do something like that, cause it's more of a control issue than anything else. But, um, I don't do anything like what I used to do. Whenever I was a kid, there, if it was a knife nearby, I had a knife, you know, I would hit myself. I'd, I have still a pencil leg in my pencil lid in my hand and leg from it. Um, but I'm far, far beyond doing that now. And yeah, it was, it was an interesting, I'm fairly introspective anyway. So the, since I sought this out, it was more uncomfortable whenever people would come up and go, wow, you guys are playing a dark game. Wow. I didn't even know people did that. And I'm thinking, uh, hi, <laughs> um, it, you'd be surprised. <laughs> and maybe in public is not the right place to do, to do something like this, but it wouldn't have worked if we didn't have a group of people at the table who were all trusting one another. Right. You wouldn't want to bring this out with just a random group of people. You want to make sure that they're people that you can trust ultimately yeah it's definitely not a party game no yeah. not and, even, and you know not and, even among and, therapists is it a party game? <laughs> right yeah for many times is a is a is a very a personal like individual thing right um right it, it doesn't it can happen you know like with other people but it, it 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 doesn't always right and uh and so how was it to have other people there kind of like sharing in it I'm just, I'm just fascinated by the game and how that must, like for everybody involved. How, how The three of us who are sitting and playing the game, we definitely got into the role play aspect of it. And try, And it was, it was interesting for people who haven't done that sort of thing before to think of, God, if I actually met someone who was going through this, what would I say to them? And it was doubly interesting for me because you know, I never knew what I wanted anyone to say. So for me to sit there and have to think through that, um, was fascinating all to itself. Um, and dealing with these things that are being said, what does the, what does the maker of the game think that that triggers and things saying, Oh yeah, that's, that's perfectly right. Whoever this is kind of gets it. I also had a, um, a thought that there could definitely be an expansion for this where instead of having things that other people say that trigger you, a lot of self-harm is what your own brain says to you that triggers you too. Um, okay. how your brain responds to, external stimulus that's not you know verbal because most every most every card in here is things that other people say to you that would trigger you and so a like a self-talk expansion i was right that's what i was going to say what you're talking about yeah. self-talk and i felt like okay so if you think about self-talk it doesn't come from the person in the first place we're born with kind of a blank slate you really don't know the verbalizations to be hurtful to yourself you hear those things as you grow up from social situations, from parental situations, and they kind of get stuck in your head and they play on this kind of loop, especially if we take them in as truth at the time or, yeah. you know, as, as our caretaker, whoever that caretaker is, has given us some truth. So now we're playing it back in our head, you know, like, for instance, uh, everything you do is half-ass. That's one I dealt with for a long time. That... That doesn't come from us. So I think in the sense, I, I like the idea of an expansion, certainly. But I think that all of those things can be self-talk as well as somebody saying it to you. Right. You know? I completely agree. 
there were just let's put it this way there were cards in there i thought oh but oh how about this 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 and this the other things that 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 popped into my head that weren't covered in the cards and you know it's it's really easy to see well there are so many other things that could be said that would probably touch on these three things um not that it needs an expansion i was just i had I had, it's one of those games that sparked other ideas in me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And to me, it sounds like the, what, what, I, what I'm assuming is, is Glenn's goal with the game, right? To have an, that emotional response. Um, not only does it, does it succeed, but it also seems to provide an, an authentic simulation, right? right. It doesn't. Because it's putting you in that place and you can relate to that, but maybe other people can't, but at least based on this conversation, I know that, you know, it does have some authenticity to it. So yeah, I need to, I need to check this game out. Yeah, it's very accurate. I'll, I'll give it that. Um, and I can see this being beneficial, especially for people who are having a lack of understanding of what makes people do that. Right. And it might even be yeah. beneficial to working with the kids and adolescents who are doing it and, and adults, if there are adults who do this, it would be beneficial for all of those people as long as it's done in the safe environment of therapy in the first place. Right. Because this is a chance for us to talk about all these individual triggers and how things happen. And then we have to remember the red, the red cube or the red button or whatever you want to call it that's in the bag that shows the bad event happening. So, so I've been working with middle schoolers for the past couple of months, and and the thought just came to me of how, you know, how a group of teenagers would, if I kind of just step back and watch the uh, a group of teenagers play, how how this kind of might play out, and I think it would be really really interesting to see, like we're like we're older, right? We're looking and 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 we're looking at this from a very different perspective, but to I don't know. I think I think there's so much potential there for for a group that you know, if there is a student in that group, or 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 if we're you know if we're talking about it in some sort of clinical setting, somebody that's dealing with that to kind of help you know that conversation go on. Like just the the benefits of of introducing something like this to a group and having these kids. Um, learn all these positive responses. Like I can think of just like the exponential positive effects that it would have over time. Right. I, I and, love the idea that it's going to give it a, a chance for you to educate kids who don't even know anything about this already. Yeah. Or they do, but they don't know what to say. Right. Which is kind of the, the point. Like I think, yeah, I don't know. Do you guys think like it, that's too young or do you think like there, there is a lot of potential there? This could easily be a game simply about bullying as well. I mean, because yeah, most of the things yeah. that are in here are just bullying statements that provoke certain things. And that red cube is just the one thing that drives someone too far. That one thing, uh, like in uh, Jay Asher's book, 13 reasons why, you know, no, no single one of those things that happened to the, to happen to the girl in that book caused her to, in that case, in her case, commit suicide, but it was an accumulation of things and it's, it's this could be just as good a tool at teaching someone about the cumulative effects of bullying as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's nothing in the game itself that indicates non-suicidal self-injury. It's that's the that's kind of the the slant from which Glenn was coming when he created the game. But 
it doesn't have to be that way. You're right. Bullying would be a perfect opportunity to use this as as something for dealing with bullying situations. Is the, is there a it. player? Is there a number of players defined? Um, two to as five. It, as it exists now. Two to five. Two okay. to five players. I don't know how you would do it in a larger group than that because I guess the, the chances of that red cube coming up get exponentially smaller as you get a larger group. Yeah. So then it starts to have, it lost some of its meaning if you can't pull out the red cube as likely. But like, but like Brian mentioned them when he said something and kind of everybody reacted like, no, 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 don't say that, don't do that. I think there's... There's still that opportunity there when you have, if you have more people. Yeah. Or you could play on teams. The, t the team who, the, the individual teams could converse among, among themselves and come up with a way to react. Yeah. Oh, and I love that. I love that as teams. being, I love that as being like a training tool for psychotherapists. Yeah. Oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. There's so much it. potential here. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. For our listeners, if you want to check this out, you go to gamesbyplaydate.com and go to the shop and look for Bad Habit. Um, also, it's a it's a print and play too, right? Like they have it available. Yeah, yeah and, and in fact, it. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a print and play, and it's I believe twenty dollars on the site for to get a, a published copy of it. They have yeah. a black and white print and play and a color print and play. So. Yeah. And the thing is, this was not advertised. Uh, you'll hear it in the interview with Glenn. There was no advertisement for the game. It's kind of subtly been floated into the world without any real fanfare. And that's because he feels like this is a pretty heavy subject matter. So he's not trying to get to the top of the Board Game Geek website or something like that. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Like, it makes sense to maybe promote it among... Again, like teachers and therapists, but you're not gonna, yeah, you're not gonna go to a convention, set up a booth for a bad habit, yeah. necessarily. <laughs> All right, so do do we want to say anything more about this? Uh, do we feel like we've covered it pretty well? Yeah. Um, I mean, unless that's why you have anything. Well, um, I, in the interview, he does mention this other game, the um, the Call to the Void, that um, I thought was pretty interesting. Are we gonna are we gonna touch on that? Yeah, if you can, can you remember to to talk a little bit about it? Uh, I I took notes. <laughs> You're awesome. So yeah, um, kind of along the same lines of a game that is talk about emotional and dealing with a very difficult subject. This is like I'm I'm fascinated by Glenn Given right now. Like that that interview is so good. Um, he talks about a game called Lapel de Vide. It's French for Call to the Void. And that's kind of that – it's a, a term for that feeling when you walk up to a ledge or something high and there's – it's like this this thing compelling you to jump. And he said he was inspired by a friend of his who – he didn't say where the friend flew from but flew all the way to San Francisco with the intention of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and that that affected him like uh, – I think there's parts missing of the story now that I think about it. I don't think that's in the in the interview. But he said that he was he suddenly started having all these nightmares about jumping off of things of different things. So um, it's it's a little complicated, but it, the the game is a he called it a parlor LARP, and you kind of have um, one person who is has their eyes closed and the other people 
um, are kind of presenting a a scenario which is either true or false, and he has to kind of decipher whether or not. Oh, and and at the end, you never know whether the thing that was being discussed was true or not. And the idea is that you're kind of um, addressing the irrational and completely false desire to kind of um, jump off of something when you're near that ledge. Kind of, he's kind of just playing with that phenomenon, mm-hmm. and it was a little complicated, um, but it. It was interesting. Not only is the concept interesting, but he kind of this says something about maybe him and and um, and the company is that they kind of the game is on their business card. He said, and and he's so he's kind of just giving it away, right? It's kind of that same idea of like how do you what do you do with something like this? And he seems to recognize that it's very powerful, and it could mean different things to different people, but that you know he's kind of giving it away and he put it in a way that's very i don't know it's a very casual way to to give people a game like oh here's my business card also there's a game about um jumping off of bridges and ledges on the back if you want to check it out (laughs) (laughs) in the interview he talks more about it but i i I was very impressed by you know these these examples of of games that address very serious issues yeah he seems to have a really strong set of ideas for what games could do for people, I was really impressed because nobody's tackling these issues. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the Parenthood game that he mentioned afterwards is... So So the scenario is that you are... It's, it's uh, feeding off of a myth um, that... Something is called the, Changelings, where, yeah, where a child is replaced... Children. Yeah, right. And your child might be replaced by a fairy, but you don't know. So you don't know if your child is really your child or or if it's a fairy um, impersonating it. And the game is set up in a way that you have these 17 different moments in a child's life. And you're trying to figure out whether or not the child is really your child or if it's kind of an imposter. But I believe you said kind of the point of the game is really to show that what, regardless of how you feel towards the child – you're still taking care of it and it's still your responsibility. Right. And so even though he's, you know, the premise is you're trying to figure out if it's yours or not, the the learning is that, uh, or the experience that he wants you to have is of caring regardless of what that kid does, whether you think it's good or bad. Um, how do you feel? How do you react? That's such a fantastic thing because... I know. <laughs> so... Often, I deal with families, parents, who are just having troubles accepting their child as they are. I mean, when it comes to a child with some mental health problems, learning that lesson of having to, having to love them no matter what. You know, they just, they just threaten me with yeah. a knife, but I still yeah. love you. You separate the action from the person. That's really a complex issue. And I, I mean, I had a client once whose family um, just kind of, instead of kind of dealing with, with the behavior of the child, they, and this happens a lot. I just happened to have, have an experience like this where the, the parents just started saying and seemingly believing that the child was possessed. 
right? Kind of like completely relinquishing all responsibility of of the child. And and you know, we 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 have that kind of thing. And and even as as teachers, we see it. We're like they're like you're the school's problem. You're your therapist's problem. Fix them for me. Um, I don't want to deal with it. And the way the game is is presented is fascinating to get somebody in the door thinking they're doing one thing and then kind of you know they can realize along the way what's what's really going on i want to explore all this guy's games in therapy sessions now (laughs) brian how do these impact an educational setting especially the last two we've talked about well um in the last school that i was teaching at i um was teaching a lot of uh, team talk classes, um, students on the, um, a lot of my students had behavioral disorders. And in the school that I taught at before that, there was all students with behavioral disorders. Um, and I don't know if games like these would be something that I would use in a, in my classroom, but the therapist, the, the, not the therapist, but the counselors on, on staff, could probably get and the teachers themselves could probably get a huge benefit in learning how to respond to their students that that could be a huge and parents benefit. too yeah like and parents, parents well, especially yeah. i think yeah yeah because I, I, I yeah you're right i think it's more of a parents game especially the last one the, the one yeah what was the name of it again i don't think he gave it a title he, well, he called it parenthood or something like parenthood yeah yeah yeah, I just wrote Parenthood Game. I didn't get the title either. I think he, it, it seemed like it was in process. Like it was something that he was Yeah, it's not on. gone through playtesting or anything, I don't think. Tentative title. Exactly. Parenthood Game. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, so did you so did you guys discover Glenn at a convention or were you aware of his games before? Actually, the the fascinating thing for me is an, another friend of mine who is not related to therapy in any way shape or form did the print and play for it because he thought that it was something that would be of interest to me and brought it to um, a game gathering and showed it to me. And I was hooked immediately. So it wasn't that I knew who Glenn was. I didn't. And I don't know where I would even recognize. I don't know how he found it. But it's... I know, but I'm I'm glad he did. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and th- and yeah. that's the kind of thing I want people to do is to let us know about these games that are going to take us in strange directions and allow us to do some exploring that we wouldn't do otherwise. As they said in uh, Jurassic Park, life finds a way. <laughs> so what, therapy <laughs> finds a way? Damn Skippy. <laughs> Education Glenn, finds a Glenn way. Glenn finds a way. Glenn finds a way. <laughs> there you go. We're just going to go off and form the uh, Glenn Given fan club now. And... I can do that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I haven't played the game, but I'm, I'm absolutely, without a doubt, going to order um, a set because I, I need to try this out. And, and I feel like it's a game that I, I like the idea of having this on hand. I don't need it right now, but I believe that in the future maybe a situation will come up where – I need it, and I and there's I can't think of a tool that would facilitate this type of conversation better than or, or any other type of, of interactive experience that would facilitate this kind of conversation better than than bad habit. 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't think I've found anything that would do that. Yeah. You know, it, it beats straight talk therapy because you've got some interactive part to it instead of it just being like, okay, let's talk about your self-harming behavior or let's talk about the bullies that you're experiencing. Yeah. I think the, on a side note, the most fascinating thing about bad habit is it's one page of rules. The second page yeah. is all Q&A over um, non-suicidal self-injury. It's just oh. this huge page of Q&A. It's really interesting to read. Yeah, so he really wanted to educate the public, and I think yeah. the, the game really does that. I, I hope that more people will find out about it. I hope people will listen to our podcast and find out more about it. Yeah, and, and again, last note, like super responsibly done, very thoughtfully done. And when you go to the page to, to buy the game, it has um, – you know, a whole paragraph on phone numbers to call if you feel that you need help or you need to talk to somebody. So the whole thing, like, I'm just, I'm just super impressed with what they've done, and and again, just so happy that to, to find it. I'll let you guys know when I get my my copy and uh, get yeah, to try it out. Please do, please do. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, I guess all that's left is we can talk about where people can find us. Um. Our website is rollingforchange.com. Hostway can be found at geektherapy.com is a good place. Geektherapy.com. And he also does a great little uh, podcast called uh, Psych Tech as well. Yep. Brian, where can you be found? At bpeace71 on the Twitters. There you go. And that's for good. We, should, we change, should just do Twitters. Just yeah. do Twitters? Yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Brian, Brian knows what he's doing. Oh, that's all I have, too. So, <laughs> For Rolling for Change, it is at Roll for Change on the Twitters. So there you go. We'll eventually have a Facebook page and some other stuff but there's also the matter of how much do we want to saturate all the saturation uh, <laughs> I don't know I think Hostway can speak to that uh, yeah don't do any of it <laughs> Hostway wants you to stay safe in your use of communication on the internet yes <laughs> So, Glenn, thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I want to talk to you today about this amazing game you've created, which may not have the highest ratings at Board Game Geek, but that's okay. Um, I didn't even know if it was on Board Game Geek. It is. It's it's up there. I think I'm one of two people who own it. Oh, my gosh. Now i got to go check it out and see. I had, not too long ago, I had a group of... Um, Fans from the show Supernatural get really upset with me, so they went around um, downvoting everything I do on the internet. So that's fun. That's probably an interesting story. What what happened there? If you don't mind talking about it, uh, we so we we make this game called Slash, which is about fan fiction pairing, and one of the cards is a Sam Winchester from the TV show Supernatural, and we had said something that was not really glorifying of him, and uh, some people took 
real offense to it. And then they went all over the place, uh, like downvoting us on Amazon and saying stuff on Board Game Geek. But whatever, that's okay. Yeah, I think I, th- I think I remember that game. I didn't realize you were attached to that game, but I think I remember Tom Vassell talking about it. Oh yeah, yeah. He also loves us on yeah. Dice Tower. Yeah, huge fan, huge fan of us. Has well, he talked yeah. at all about uh, bad habits? No. Uh, at some point, I think I had given a copy to one of his co-hosts, but um, it never. I don't know, never piqued their interest, but that's okay. Like a lot of the marketing for this game is, is really um, casual is not the word for it, but we're not, we don't like to push it on people. Um, in fact, we were super reluctant about even selling it online. And it was, it was the kind of thing that we would only sell face to face because we needed to make sure that people were, understanding of what the topic and the handling of the topic was when they were picking up the game. Um, Cause we don't want, you know, we're very sensitive to the reactions that people can have to various topics and subject matters. And like, um, I think that's part of being a responsible creator and artist is you got to, you got to at least attempt to understand your audience and how they may or may not see something. So, yeah. So we just, we wanted to make sure that people understood we're not here to like make fun of people who have hurt themselves. Um, right. Because that would be a really terrible thing to do. So, so our goal here at Rolling for Changes is kind of twofold. One is the, to look at games that are therapeutic or... <laughs> games that are used for the purposes of professional like professional use business that kind of thing and the other side is to talk about the experience of people during the play of games sort of the phenomenological side of things nice um so before we get too deep into that maybe you could tell us uh what your well actually if you could tell us the rules i mean i I kind of know them but i think hearing them from you would be of more value to our listeners Cool. Um, so just basically, Bad Habit is a game uh, about learning as a community how to assist people who commit non-suicidal self-injury. So people who are cutters or do self-mutilation or, or any form of that as a, um emotional disorder, I guess would be the correct way to put it. So the way the game is played is that you have these two decks of cards. One deck is made of three copies of 10 different um, things that are your triggers, things like feelings of hopelessness or doubt or anger. And then those are the things that might trigger you to harm yourself. And the other are like phrases that you would run into in conversation or in the world that you know, have real negative connotations or may not seem to, but could easily um, trip that switch for you. Mm-hmm. So the way that you play is that at the beginning of the game, everybody takes three of those trigger cards. So you could get three of all the same one, but you're probably going to get one of one of each of the 10 or three, you know what I mean? Uh, and then you take turns uh, and you have um, 
20 white cubes that you put in a bag for each player and one red cube. And then uh, you take turns flipping over cards, the reading out the sentence, and then reading out the associated triggers with that sentence. And then anybody who has any of those triggers without uh, saying which one they have will draw a cube from the bag. If they draw a white cube, they keep it. If they draw a red cube, the game is immediately over and someone has died or, or really tragically hurt themselves, I mean, symbolically. And um, that's it. You've lost. So what's going to happen is people are going to pull these triggers, uh, pull these scar tokens, and then uh, the person who flipped over uh, the card is going to get a chance to attempt to assist another person by saying, you know, um, like, Woody, I, th I think that you're struggling with feelings of um, self-loathing. And if you had that trigger in your hand, you would be allowed to discard it and put two scars back into the bag. So kind of refreshing the pool mm -hmm. of it. Um, if you didn't, you would have to draw another scar token. Um, and this is kind of symbolic to how being put on the spot and isolated and misdiagnosed uh, can cause more pressure and anxiety on a person. Um, and then there are others. And then, the, you know, the first player kind of travels around the board where you're flipping cards. And obviously, the more pulls that are happening, the closer you are towards the um, to losing the game. Once everyone's gotten rid of all of their cards by uh, helping another person discard them, um, you win uh, as a group. The only other real wrinkle to the rules is that if you don't have any triggers, uh, any trigger cards left when you're helping another person and you incorrectly um, assist them, then they're going to take an extra scar token. Um, and that's kind of symbolic of the imbalance of uh, power between people who are perceived to be like sane versus not sane and just like when a healthy person tells a sick person to fix themselves it can often come off as uh, condescending and damaging um, and also if you are the last person in the game to have any triggers you're going to double all of the the scar tokens that you take so it like the pressure ramps up the longer the game goes on and the closer uh, to victory the game is because that felt like an elegant way to mimic what actually happens when people are hurting themselves and they are alone in a community hurting themselves. Um, and the strategies for how to win are much the same on the strategies of how to assist a person uh, in your community who's doing that, which is actually to not overly pressure them, but to use patience and empathy and paying attention um, to learn and listen and assist appropriately. So, yeah, that's basically it. In a, so, in a nutshell. so I, I love this game. We, we played it recently at a, a game gathering with some friends and, uh, it's a really intense feeling. You know, you come off of game, playing games like Terra Mystica and things like that and have total fantasy yeah. as their background and you get into something as real as this. And what we tried to do with the dealing with the, the triggers was to 
used empathy whenever we were trying to help the other person. So, you know, if, you know, you give the example of self-loathing, we we'd talk about the feelings of the person who's going through self-loathing and to kind of make it a, we're, we're trying to practice it as a therapeutic practice because <laughs> one of my goals is, is to use more board games and therapy. That's kind of been an ongoing thesis for me. And, uh, it, it just seemed like there was a lot of opportunity to jump off and talk about these individual things. But what really got me was this idea that, okay, even on the first turn, you could still draw that red tile, that red, we, we had buttons because it was a, um, a, a print and play, a print and play. Um, but you could draw that red and it could be over really quickly. Uh, so I saw all the potential for this being a great way of talking about non-suicidal self-harm and and things of that nature but i also saw the potential for it just fall apart very quickly if you you know especially if you're in a therapy session the first thing you pull is the red <laughs> the red yeah. Yeah. Uh, cube and you're suddenly in the midst of talking to a, a a child or an adolescent about self-harm and we've already lost the game <laughs> yeah but there's i mean it needed to be that way right because to 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 pretend that like these kind of behaviors are consequenceless um, and to have that be the framework of the rules would be really naive. And I mean, it, we acknowledge it in the rules and and a lot of the, the stuff we're writing that you know the people who are harming themselves are almost always not trying to die. Right there, there. It's a completely different. Um, it's a completely different psychological urge, uh, but those things happen, and that is a terrible consequence of that type of behavior, and that has to be a part of understanding how to deal with it. Um, because you know, like it, it sets the stakes to a reasonable amount and it it kind of perfectly balances the the pressure to help and the urgency needed of help against um the the care with which you need to do help and it kind of it helps you understand that it's not just a matter of like yelling at a person until they stop because you're you're just gonna do it bluntly and make them hurt themselves more right and also, like, when you do that thing, when you pull out the red token and you lose, now you're having an associated but equally important kind of discussion about loss and death and tragedy and what a person could or could not do about it and how that's part of, of life. So, that's yeah. That's certainly true. That makes, that makes little sense. And that's what I was thinking, you know, if I ever use this with one of my self-harming teenagers that I work with, that that would be the way it would go. We would have that conversation. What motivated you to create this game? What should, do you have a background with this, uh, with non-suicidal self-injury, or, or what's yeah? Um, so it's like twofold, uh, like very shallowly. Uh, one of the guys that I was um, a fellow designer with, uh, he had purported to me that like uh, board games couldn't be emotional um and i took that as a like a dare basically challenge 
Yeah. And it's like, no, they can be. They, they just aren't because the people who are designing board games predominantly don't care about that. Right. Like that's not, that's, that's not what they're interested in. Um, but it definitely can be because there are games that deal with complicated and emotionally charged subjects. So they're going to have emotional, um, repercussions on the player. Um, and also, you know, more uh, pedantically, like things like suspense and excitement are an emotional. So whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, he was like, yeah, but you're never going to make a board game that'll make somebody cry. <clears throat> and then I was like, I had an intern. Uh, my intern at the time uh, had a uh, concern with uh, self-harm. I, as a, as a youth did. Uh, one of my business partners also had a history of it. And I think that a lot of people do. Um, and maybe sometimes it's completely undiagnosed or sometimes it's at some point in their past or future. And so it was something that we could really relate to. Um, and it seemed like it just clicked uh, when I started thinking about, well, what's the problems with this? And how do you deal with it? And how can I make that interesting? And, and what are games actually really good at teaching? Um, and that, so the stuff that's really great about games is it's really good at imparting imperial uh, <clears throat> experiential information mm-hmm. as opposed to just um, giving you the history of, you know, America or like, like rattling off trivia and facts. Games, yeah, they, they can kind of help there, but it doesn't really sink in in the way that a simulated experience um, can sink in. So a game might really not teach you all the details really well, but it can teach you kind of a holistic understanding of a situation in a way that a textbook or instruction cannot. And something like uh, empathy and patience are really nebulous um, experiential concepts for people to learn and you can't just yell at someone and go, you need to be more patient or you need to be more empathetic. It it doesn't, you can't teach that. They have to practice it and understand it, internalize it and learn it. And so simulation and board games are really good at um, giving you kind of uh, on ramps to to that understanding. Um, So yeah, so that, that seemed like the perfect subject matter because we had experience with it. It seemed like there were great mechanisms for teaching positive um, responses to that subject matter. Yeah, it just kind of all came together really, really quickly. Um, and then I made it, and uh, I had people tell me that it was really important that I make it. So I yeah. it's, it's an incredible game. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's not going to rise to the top of board game geek like i said but i think it's going to be an incredible tool to get people talking about non-suicidal self-injury and even you know trauma in people's lives because it kind of points towards the kind of traumas that we experience whether it being bullied or self-loathing or whatever it might be so on that end of things it, it creates an amazing experience of being in that space i really appreciated that about it and that's one thing I appreciate about board games in the first place is even if it's not an identified position of board gaming, conflict in games can cause discussion about conflict in real life. And that 
I think that's one of the important experiential sides of board games. So this yeah. game does that really well. You know, I think analog games in general, there, there's a, like stuff like LARPs and RPGs have been leveraged uh, in therapy and in instructional situations because that kind of uh, improvisational acting can be really useful in teaching these kinds of things. I don't think that board games per se have ever been super interested in doing that. So they, no one makes them to do that. Whereas with LARP, especially now, when you look at stuff like the Nordic LARP culture and American freeform LARPs, there are a lot of people doing very emotionally um, investigative and robust games that are about what you would probably consider seriously unfun topics. But the the games end up being super engaging and engagement is fun. It doesn't have to be you I, you get the you get the feedback loop of fun from engagement, right? So uh I think like Jan McGonagall talks about it in the theory of fun, like the idea of Fiero when you have like triumph or tiny victory that propels you forward in exploring something. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be glee that propels you forward in your exploration. It can be, you know, it can be intense emotional engagement. Um, and so that's why people at Arbor RPG, they'll, you know, they'll do eight-hour LARPs about, like, the AIDS epidemic in among men in 1980s America, which does not sound like the most fun evening. <laughs> but it's really, you know, it can be very cathartic, and it can be really amazing. And, it's, yes, it's going to be really sad, and it's going to be really upsetting. But, you know, that emotional exploration is super engaging, and that is a great evening in its own right. Um, I'd like to see more board games attempting to do stuff like that. Like, uh, I can't remember her name, who made Train, which is about loading cargo on a train, and then has like a spoiler at the end, which is kind of an art project. Uh, that has a huge emotional impact. And then um, Freedom, which is about uh, board game about yeah. Yeah, the Underground Railroad, uh, is good um it's complicated uh, i don't i don't know how to feel about that game like i feel like it falls on the side of good because it, it's making a great point it's kind of gamifying a, the positive approach to it but it also is turning it also is using slaves as game pieces, and I've never been cool with that. Like, that that's why Puerto Rico is a shitty game. Uh, not going to play Five Tribes. Uh, like, there are some of those choices that you make in design um, that are a little bit callous. But I don't know. I think I think Freedom does it, does it well enough. Uh, very nobly is probably the best way to, to describe it. But yeah. Well, when you look at what uh, Freedom the Underground Railroad does, it, 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 it at least gives kind of an educational experience to those people who maybe didn't realize the kind of sacrifices yes. that had to be made in order to make those changes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, but that's my 
you know, I think because of the lack of emotional um, investment in board games, it, it it means that things get immediately trivialized, right? Like when you shrink a person down to a meeple, um, you're really reducing their history and their the context of their existence. And that uh, can be really troubling in its own way. And it, it, it's the way that I think um, people think about war as kind of a numbers game. It, it's dehumanizing and it's just a matter of, well, I just need to kill more people than the other people. I, I, well, I love war games. I grew up on like Axis and Allies and that stuff. There, there's a there's a way to do it that isn't um, horrible. But I think the more uh, personal you're making the subject matter, the less abstract it is, the more you need to be really careful about how you identify people and how you bring subject matter into the game, so that you're not just stomping muddy boots all over someone's feelings. Or history, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. So, it's tricky. Uh, you're talking about trying to create games that sort of offer an experience or help you to see a particular point of view. And my experience with therapy games, those games that are made just for the purpose of therapy, such as, you know, the anchor management games where you uh, roll and move your your piece around the board to try to talk about different anchor triggers and things of that nature. My experience with that is it comes across as a very classic experience to the client. It doesn't feel like it's meaningful for them or it doesn't take them, you know, it might take a little kid, someone who's six or seven years old to the places they need to go. When you get more to an adolescent or an adult level, that starts to seem to be kind of a ridiculous premise. So have you seen other games that do this well? And you mentioned LARPs, but are there other board games that do this well? I think there are other board games that have the potential to do that. Um, I, I guess it depends on what you're dealing with. I could see some great lessons about pressure and anxiety management coming from playing a game of Space Alert, for instance. And I don't know if it's necessarily made for that. Um, but I could also see uh, a lot of, you know, they're, like it's not a really great game, but like Winter's Tale is a kind of a storytelling hybrid board game. Yeah. Um, and I think that that could be a good place to explore more complicated ideas. Um, stuff like Rory Story Cubes or... Um, What's that fairy tale one? Once upon a time. Again, the, the more like storytelling oriented ones, uh, in a way, they have it easy because you can kind of shoehorn any discussion into that framework. But yeah, there are. I think there are very few games that directly concern themselves with social or emotional topics and attempt to use the medium of games to assist people in improving themselves in those situations. It's a, it's, um, at best they use some tropes of social engineering or, um, human behavior as a mechanism for the game. So like things like, you know, werewolf or coup or, or any of the betrayal and, and, and trust type games um, are obviously 
could be used for a lot of interesting discussions, but just the rules aren't set up in that way. So it's a weird side branch of board games um, that maybe some amazing things will be. I, at some point, I had been working on an idea of um, an asymmetrical uh, card game um, about uh, uh, inequality. So you'd, you'd have like pe- people who re- are different minorities trying to get ahead um, in the world, and then people who come from a position of privilege who are also trying to get ahead. And so you, you just have this imbalance of power. And, like the whole game is about acknowledging, you know, acknowledging implicit privilege or bias or seeing how systems are construed uh, in one way to like, um, you know, push another person forward intrinsically or not. But uh, unfortunately like that, it's, it's really challenging to make that game fun and um, not immediately aggravating, right? Because at the end of all of it, like you want there to be a positive feedback loop with your with your game, right? You want people to play it and have the experience of playing it, make them want to play it more, um, because that's what's great about games. So it's really hard to do that in a way that teaches people about overcoming um, systemic bias. It's the same reason that the last hour of Monopoly is is like the worst time of your life. It's one person who has everything trying to ruin the time for everyone else. And that's how they win. Um, it's terrible. So, But you were talking about the anger management, and I, I thought it was actually kind of funny that it had a roll-and-move mechanic, because I think if there's one thing in a board game that would really help me experience anger, it's, it's the capriciousness of rolling and moving. Uh, yeah. Like, just the total lack of control uh, that you have there. I, and so there are mechanical um, mechanical aspects of games that I think track really well to certain life experiences. So stuff like roll and move and the fact that it's there's only so much you can do to make a thing happen or improve your chances that you still have to deal with, um, you know, fate or other people or randomness like that is something interesting and intrinsic about gaming that you're not going to get from like a book right you're from like the head-on narrative um so stuff that talks or uses that which is kind of why we put that you could lose on the first raw thing in the game there is something more realistic in the very foundations of board games than even in the best narratives. So, I mean, crime and punishment will, will teach you a lot, but maybe Trivial Pursuit could also teach you a lot. I don't know. No, that's probably not right. Well, I, I, think you're, I think it does, but I think what you're speaking to is a difference in giving information versus experiencing information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. That's, and even in, like, contrasted with stuff like LARP or RPG, like, sometimes that is, it doesn't have the um, emotionless mechanics to enforce the realism of it. Sometimes it's, it's so kind of freeform that you're just doing storytelling for the sake of making interesting stories. And that's why... I think a lot of American freeform stuff is more interesting than a LARP RPG because it 
it says like, oh, you know, you're going to roll on these tables or you're going to, you have to use this kind of mechanism. And so you are constrained by things. It, it is not just make up whatever story you want that you find interesting. There are corridors that you need to choose to go down. Um, and I think that's more, that's part of what makes it really fun is what's the best way to get down this uh, corridor and uh, make it, make it interesting. <clears throat> Yeah, it's more of a problem-solving kind of situation. Yeah. In a good role-playing game where it's more about the role-playing than it is about rolling the die. Yeah, but you still need, like, you need both, right? Like, it's, that's what's great about it is that it has both. Um, because otherwise it would just be improv theater, and that's the second lowest form of theater. <laughs> the first lowest being musical theater, which is neither music nor theater. <laughs> despite Hamilton being really good. Anyway, so <laughs> that was the theater major. <laughs> so moving a little away from that, going back to the game dynamics, because yeah. in play of the game, I know that, of course, table talk is a big issue. Uh, this is very similar in that way to like an hobby or something like that. When you looked at the, the way that table talk was going to happen, how did you... I know, I know you can't talk about the direct trigger you have, but did you see sort of a subtle conversation developing around that? You know, that happens sometimes. I think when you choose to play a game, um, you have to choose to play by the rules or not. And sometimes that choice is going to be a matter of what you feel comfortable with. And um, if you don't believe in the experience that the game is trying to give you, uh, it will mean that you don't value the rules as, as they are put out. So in a game like Bad Habit, you would engage in either explicit or subtle table talk, which will undermine the experience. And and that's unfortunate, but um, there's nothing I can really do to stop that, except explicitly call it out and say, don't do this, because you're really going to going to ruin the point of the game so but well, so I, otherwise it's just a straight deduction game where yeah. you're doing your best it's you know it's deduce or die at that point you're trying to figure out who has what based on the logic of the thing so there's no emotional conversation that's being delivered except for from talking about the individual triggers yeah so well when we designed the game like we started there Right, like we we want the mechanism to track to the the simulation and experience that we want, and so the deduction does. But the way that you do the deduction, um, it uh, let me backtrack it a second. Um, I think you can add more onto that, but we just wanted to make sure that there was a cap of, of how you're going to deal with it. Right, you're not you're not going to be like no. You know, like nodding when people suggest one thing, or or cluing them in um, when they move in another direction. It seems a little bit unfair for or um, inaccurate uh, as to the way people who commit non-suicidal self-injury tend to act. Um, so we really argue against it. Um, it does end up becoming really. But I think that mechanism enforces the lesson of the game in and of itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that makes sense. And and certainly we didn't do the kind of subtle table talk that would let somebody know what the person was going through. 
Yeah. Um, because we didn't want to, we didn't want to fake the game. We didn't want to make it feel like we weren't playing the game in the way it was meant to be played. But I've noticed if you, you know, I'm comparing to Hanabi, which is maybe not the best choice, but I've noticed in Hanabi, people develop maybe a tertiary set of language in order to manage that deduction that's going on. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering if that's going to happen with this game. Obviously, I haven't played it enough to even get to that point to to make it do that yet. But I'm, I'm wondering if in the future that's what's going to happen, if it's going to develop its own sort of uh, extended abstract language that goes with trying to determine who's who and what's what. I mean, it could. I think it would require a lot of repeated play with the same group. Um, and then you can start developing that. But but a lot of a lot of games with any kind of deduction component are going to have that. That's, that's definitely a problem with Hanabi, is that uh, people who play it with each other very frequently have their little tells that they that they are aware of and they use that to beat to beat the game um but i think part of your approach to the game in the, in the first place uh, helps deal with that if you're going into the game to beat the game yeah you're gonna start developing those things um pretty quickly if you're going if you're playing a game to experience the game win or lose then that's going to be a little bit more restrained and that's I think that's something important to remember in game design in and of itself. You want to make it so that the game is enjoyable um, when a person is losing, that it is engaging to them. Uh, You don't want to make it the last hour of Monopoly. So everybody shouldn't feel like they have agency and can contribute because that will keep them invested. And you won't alienate them and get them racking their brains for, for ways to beat the system or break or break open the system so that they don't have to deal with that feeling of unengagement. So um, I think Bad Habit does a pretty good job of keeping people engaged fairly. Um, and, you know, any cooperative game uh, can tend to do that. But, <clears throat> yeah. Well, so uh, the triggers that were offered there were all very universal like we've all experienced something like that so it, it made for good conversation along the way so I, yeah we wanted that to all be sorry sorry no, go ahead uh we wanted that to all be commonplace and approachable so the kind of things that you would hear the kind of some things which are really explicitly negative um statements and some things which the person who's uttering it might not even think is uh upsetting or harmful um you know, like that, that kind of unempathetic day-to-day chatter that, that you just hear talking about. Um, and how things that seem really neutral can have a really deep emotional impact is, is something we were thinking of when we were writing those. And, and the unwritten rule we had was if you get, you know, whatever your trigger is, you need to talk about how that trigger has impacted your life in some way. So that created more of a discussion about how we hurt one another and how that can end up causing problems. So I, at that level, I thought it was fantastic because I'm here at this game convention and we're we're getting into these really deep topics. And then obviously we have to trust each other a lot in order to open up one this. But since we did have people that trusted one another, it, it ended up being a pretty powerful game session. Yeah, that's. 
I, I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about games or any kind of collaborative simulation is you get you get over the hurdle of intimacy very quickly. Um, that's one of the great things about games is that when we're all in this system together, we start to implicitly trust each other and we can have conversations that might in other contexts require more understanding or personal connection between people. But we've, we've had this shorthand of this experience that we're having or that we had together. And that allows us to um, communicate more directly to each other um, emotionally. Mm -hmm. And that, and that can be with like absolutely any type of game. Um, but you know, like, because you're, you immediately recognize that you share something with another person. Um, like heck when I, when I find another person who plays that runner, I basically ignore every other human being and we just talk about, <laughs> but it, then we talk about like what we love about it and how it makes us feel or the best moments in the game or like the, the culture around it. Like it's not just like little silly rules interactions and stuff like that. Like there is that we immediately have a connection and, and sharing that connection allows us to just cut through a lot of the, you know, like social baby steps um, that you get it, uh, in between knowing other people. Oh, yeah. And, and that's probably an argument that can be made that, that games create this kind of archetypal language between people so that you can talk about experiences that you don't have otherwise. And you can also sort of uh, engage in the rules outside of outside of the gameplay, sort of a metagaming thing, but not really metagaming in that sense. Yeah, totally. I think that when you're in a community and and especially when you're in a very small community, like at a table playing a game, and you share a certain jargon and understanding of the system with another person, um, it's very clear that they're on the same wavelength as you. Uh, and so it takes away a lot of the doubt in how you talk to another person or how you listen to another person, and it assumes a certain competence, confidence, and, and understanding of, of how you're communicating. That probably bleeds really heavily into other subjects that may come up beyond just the immediate, like, rules and context that you're discussing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that can be really, really helpful, and that's I would suspect that's a lot of why game playing and therapy exists is because you're getting people into that like mindset. You're getting them into that emotional space where you're in agreement and then you're talking about stuff as opposed to talking and talking and talking, trying to get to a place of agreement. Like you, you, you've already cheated your way there. I mean, I, it's not, I'm not trying to be negative by saying cheating, but like it's your shortcut to get to that point, and then from there, you can really go anywhere. Yeah, from my, from my perspective is using you know, using games and therapy. My experience of it is very often it can abstract the problem to a level at which it's now, now we can communicate about it because we're not talking directly about our experience anymore, we're talking about our experience within the game. Yeah. So it makes it possible for, especially the child who's dealt with trauma or something like that, to abstract that trauma into the game universe. You know, <laughs> I have this conflict in my life, but this conflict on the board is much more present right now. So we can talk about how you're experiencing the conflict on the board in relation to the conflict 
in your life. Yeah, and also like the, the when it comes to improving these situations, like the strategies that you take in a board game or the, the decisions that you make in a board game, like understanding the consequences of those decisions or how impactful certain strategies are, I think it's really easy or easier to take that and use it as an analogy for for real-world change or real-world decision-making, you know, really helping you understand the impact of the choices that you make and how uh, it may or may not affect your life. So, yeah, like, it's, it seems like it, it's, it's the perfect tool. And it, it, it actually surprises me how little games get used in adult therapy um, because we they use them a lot in, like, corporate training sessions and you know you use them a lot in like kids psychology where where you're trying to again trying to get them to that communication space but at some point like we stop using them because we think adults are maybe better than that or they don't need it but um it's been my experience that adults are far more calcified in the way that they communicate with people than children are so having ways to get past all of those barriers uh, and get to a place of shared communication is probably more important for uh, adults and like being able to cut through all the cruft and baggage and get to like core issues um, could probably use more tools like games. That's one of the destinations I'm working on. So listen, Glenn, I was wondering if you maybe have a personal anecdote of how a game has impacted your life in some way. Like if you can recall a particular situation in which that involvement in the game was therapeutic or meaningful to you. Hmm. That's, that's pretty challenging. I know that, I know that getting into making games, um, pretty directly saved my life but it, it it was the act of like going from a person who works for another person to a person who works for themselves however you know poor that made me um it really helped me understand that there were things that about myself that i was not comfortable with and, and not happy with um so, I mean, I think there's that. When I was when I was much younger and I got heavily into... Um, oh, okay. This is perfect. So, I have a half-brother, or I had a half-brother. He passed away. And um, he was the only person in my family and in my group of friends as a kid that um, would engage in kind of like really nerdy pursuits but he lived in texas and i lived in new york so i'd only ever see him around christmas time when he'd come up and visit and so i remember one year when he came up and visited uh, him and his family were upstairs uh i was in kind of basement where i did my nerdy gaming stuff and i'm probably 11 or 12 at this point and i had just spent uh, like an hour and a half setting up um the board for the the game shogun which is like a um japanese samurai war game and it takes forever and there's no 
world in which I'm going to get the family to come downstairs and play Shogun and um, complete it within a night. So it's like this pipe dream of like, well, we could all do this and, and get along. Because, uh, you know, family, uh, for a lot of people, really sucked. So, um, we, we, we never got to play, but when my brother came down uh, to the basement, he saw what I had done, and we just started talking about all the other games, the games that he has played, the ones that I was interested in, and, like, using that language to actually connect with people who, for me, I, I only saw once a year, um, mm -hmm. but were important in my life, um, far in um, out of balance with the amount of time that I spent with them. And that, like, that kind of interaction with other people um, started to make people really matter to me and, and probably turned me away from being a, a total sociopath. So... Yeah, like that's that ability to have a short canned connection with other people um, was especially important to me. And yeah, that's my that's my moment that I remember. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's uh, I have not got to play Shogun, but I've heard nothing but good things about it, and it, it, <laughs> it sounds like a hard one to get a hold of right now. Um, they renamed it. I want to say it's not Ikugara or something. They renamed it a few years ago. It's great. It's like it has this really cool mechanic where you've got all these swords and this and the swords are like um like you're like you're drawing straws and you use the swords uh, you pull them out of someone's hand uh, to determine play order and then um, the entire economy is based on kind of a bidding system that you know you could hire a ninja to assassinate another person's military leader but you need to you don't know what the other people are bidding so everybody's doing this blind bidding um, it's a really good game like those um, I want to say not Avalon Hill I don't remember what they were but it's, maybe no, it wasn't Games Workshop. It was the same people who did Axis and Allies and, and Fortress America. It was those three games kind of were all these big $60 box, tons of plastic pieces, four hour plus war games. But there was some really interesting stuff going on, especially I think Shogun is probably the best of them. Um, Axis and Allies is, eh. But um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So we, we talked a little bit about Bad Habit. Can you tell, and you did mention, uh, I think, Slash. Are there other games that you've been involved with or do you have something coming up that you're working on? Um, yeah, we have, well, there's two things that I'm working on that are, that are kind of relevant to this. One is um, a game that I made in response to a friend of mine who traveled all the way to San Francisco to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge because they were having a particularly difficult time in their life. Um, and it's something they continue to struggle with. And just the... That obviously struck a chord with me. And um, I started having these recurring nightmares of jumping off of things. Um, and that, again, like, like self-harm, those... Having those visions of, of really de self-destructive actions, 
I thought it was a really interesting space to explore. So we made um, kind of a little parlor LARP called uh, Le Pel du Vide, which is um, the call of the void. And it's the sensation you get when you stand on the edge of a precipice of um, that it's calling to you and asking to you to jump and, and the unreality of it. Um, and so we made this game where everybody who's playing, you have to have an odd number of people who are playing. Um, one person will be, uh, will close their eyes. Everyone else will thumb, give a thumbs up or thumbs down. I'm sorry, you have to have an even number of players. Everybody closes their eyes. Uh, uh, one person closes their eyes. Everybody else puts a thumbs up or thumbs down. And what they're doing in the thumbs up or thumbs down is they're determining whether the narrative that they are going to tell to the person is real or is uh, fantasy, like a dream. And then the other person with their eyes closed is going to be able to ask questions about uh, what do they see? What do they hear? What do they smell? Where are they? Um, just you know, asking the group to describe the scenario. And then at the end of it, they decide whether they're going to retreat from uh, the ledge or, the, or jump off the ledge. And um, they do that and then play passes to another player and they are never allowed to know whether it was real or a dream. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's the sticking point. Um, and some people love that, or, or some people are like, that's stupid. Uh, so, yeah, it's really... It, it sounds awesome to me. I'd like to try it and see what it's like. It's on our business card. Like, it's oh, totally okay. free. Uh, you can... Um, I'll put a link to it on our site. But, yeah, we just give it out on our business card. The entire game fits onto a business card. Um, so we're doing that, and uh, so we did that. And then I'm working on a game about... Um, uh, parenthood. So in English, uh, uh, European mythology, you have uh, changelings, right? Which are children who have been kidnapped by fairies and replaced with fairies. Um, and I thought that was a really neat way to, to talk about what family means and what um, parentage means. Um, because if you are a parent, Everybody thinks, I think, that when you become a parent that it's this simple, unquestioning love and, and trust of your child, but it's not. Um, in fact, I mean, it might, you might have a tremendous amount of love and devotion to your child, and that can be a source of great pain when they do, uh, you know, horrible things. Like, I, I imagine the parents of, like, the Columbine shooters probably super torn apart in ways that very, very few people can imagine. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to have a game that explores the idea of is your, well, it's like a, it's like a three-pronged game. Like there'll be two parents and a child and they go through these 17 moments in the child's life um, where they, they improv out or they, they ask questions about how they're going to react to um, the the kid gets off the bus at the wrong bus stop and and gets lost. But you start to question whether is this is this my child? Did they, is this a mistake or did they make a malicious choice? And then that changes the dynamic between the two parents and the parents and the child dynamic and whether the child is or is not um, human. 
has bearing on it, but also you start to question whether that means anything at all, because who cares? You're still you're still the parent of this being, and you still got to raise it to be the best it can be. Um, so yeah, again, that like those questions of parentage, identity, responsibility, and humanity. Um, in a in a fun game. So. <laughs> It sounds like you are making the kind of games that we want to talk about here on Rolling for Change. So I, I'm really excited to see what you have coming up in the future. Oh, thank you. Well, when it, whenever I publish that thing, I'll I'll get back in touch with you. Yeah. <clears throat> can you tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet, on Twitter, on all those wonderful places? Yeah, you can go to gamesbyplaydate dot com and check out our games. Um, you can purchase them there. And uh, I am very frequently mismanaging our Twitter account, which is at Games by Playdate. Um, and so all all the unhinged poor business choices I make usually show up there first. So <laughs> anyway. So Twitter side, we can we can watch you post and <laughs> fall down the rabbit hole a few times. Yeah, um, my a friend of mine who's a much more professional business person was like, "Yeah, it's, it's kind of like watching a train wreck. It's it's really interesting, <laughs> but um, maybe it shouldn't represent a successful business." Uh, yeah, but I, I don't know. I think <clears throat> part of the problem with a lot of people who create stuff or who have businesses is is that they don't wear their heart on the sleeve, and so they're forced into um, ethically compromising uh, situations because money means more to them than doing right by people, and that's really a sad and upsetting. And I would rather not do that. So yeah. Okay. Well, and then on the other side of things, um, there is this, you almost have to be a two-pronged person in order to be both creative and a business person at the same time. It's a really challenging thing to do, I think. Yeah, yeah. Especially because the, the better you get at the business part of it, um, the more that eats away at your opportunity to do the other side of it because the other side of it the creative side is almost completely unschedulable right you know you're just you're just rolling dice uh ironically uh you're just like hoping that you have a pen and paper nearby when you have a good idea and to be really good at it you need to get that information and then work it and edit it and work it and work it and play test it and play test and place it and that part is fine but like the the giving birth part is super random. Um, so yeah, anyway. So Glenn, thank you so much for talking to us. Is there anything you would like to say to listeners before we close out this discussion? Um, go find weird games and play them with people that you don't know. Like, yeah, just you're going to make connections with people that you didn't think that you connect with and it'll be great. Uh, you know, oh, I think if you ever have the opportunity to play something that you don't know or never experienced, you should take it, um, as opposed to playing more of the game that you've already played. So. I, I'm totally down with that. I'm probably more cult of the new than I want to be, but at the same time, <laughs> there's still things that I keep going back to, but I, I 
I agree with your sentiment. Yeah. Especially playing with more people because I, I see this happen at conventions. Unfortunately, I see people group up and refuse to break apart the group. Yeah. And it's like you miss the whole culture of, of, of our gaming world when you do that. That can be good and bad because I think there's a real poisonous atmosphere to large swaths of gaming culture. Um, uh, and that motivates a lot of the people that I approach with games, like trying to get more good people involved. But yeah, like I know people who are going to Origins who live two miles away from me, and like 10 of them are going to Origins, which is in Ohio, so they drive, and then they're all just going to play together. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> so it's like you you should not do that. You should play with other people. Anyway. Well, again, Glenn, thank you so much for talking to us here at Rolling for Change. Um, we look forward to all your future pursuits. Excellent. Thank you very much, Woody. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Rolling for Change. This has been episode four, a conversation with Glenn Gibbon and a discussion about the game Bad Habit. If you'd like to reach us, you can email us to gamers at rollingforchange.com. Our Twitter account is at rollforchange. And our theme music is by Rocket Scientist, which you can find at rocketscientist.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to seeing you again. Keep on rolling for change. Mm-hmm.